Besides, uh, they're expensive. Young children don't need expensive smartphones. And eventually, you got one. Yeah, this all sounds very familiar. I did get one eventually. I think I got your hand-me-down phone when you were done with it. Uh, but then it was forever between upgrades after that. Why do you need an upgrade if what you have works perfectly well? I think we've been through this. Yes, I think we have a few times. The thing is, every year, the technology gets better. Uh, this, these things do more. They're faster. Um, every year, it just keeps getting better and better. When things get old, they get clunky. One thing I've learned growing up in America, new things are better. <sighs> yeah, well, now, uh, now we're getting to the heart of the matter, right? I mean... Apart from the fact that you've got all this peer pressure telling you you've got to get these new things, apart from the fact that there are these massive forces in our society, consumer forces, marketing forces, convincing you that you absolutely cannot live today without a thing that you did not know existed yesterday, there's this deeper cultural myth at work about new things being better. It, sure, but... I've seen those old computers from your day, the, the old ones. They were massive. They took up, you know, an entire room. The, they had these big punch cards and tape drives just to send an email. Are those things really, really good? First of all, your sense of history is way off. You are not talking about my day. That was a long time ago. That's like the 1960s when they had big clunky computers like that. They did not send email because email had not been invented. In my day... <laughs> We had really awesome, cool, sort of compact, powerful computers, like the Commodore 64. <laughs> I've, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Um, we're living here in America. America is the new world, right? And that's a big part of our self-understanding in this culture. We left behind the old world because the old world was broken to start a new world. So we love things that are new. We love new cars, we love new clothes, we love new smartphones, and we love youth, right? We, we love youth, so yeah. you've got to act long, young, and you've got to be hip, and you've got to dress young, uh, young, and dye your hair, and your grandkids can call you anything they want, so long as it's not grandpa, <laughs> right? Because we love youth. This is one of the underlying myths of our culture. The old stuff is bad, new things are better. Okay, but let's be honest, new things are better, right? I, I mean, yes, your phone is not as, as new as mine, but you're not still using the iPhone 1, are you? No. Y you like some new technology. But I still have it. <laughs> right, I'm sure you do, yeah, somewhere. Um, we like new technologies. We, we like technologies like, say, the refrigerator or indoor plumbing. These things are, are new. Um, I don't think we'd really want to go back to the medical technology of, say, 1920 or 1860. Can I interest you in maybe an amputation or some leeches or something? The new methods are better methods. We don't have to keep doing things the same old way. Um, you know, maybe I'll give you those classic muscle cars from your day. Those are pretty cool, even though they are clunky and they do guzzle gas, destroy the environment. They're not particularly safe. They're not particularly comfortable. But they are pretty cool. I'll give you that. I stopped listening after you said they're cool. <laughs> yeah. well, even, 
even given those, which can be cool, I still think that for the most part, new things are better. And the same is true in our society, right? I, I get that modern society is far from perfect, but I don't really want to go back to the old ways of doing things, old traditions, things like Jim Crow laws and segregation and slavery. Those old traditions are trouble. They, they tie us down and they hold us back. New things are better. Okay, well, does that hold true with faith as well? <laughs> are you kidding? People have literally killed each other for thousands of years over their religious traditions. And the way people still put up fights over their particular kind of worship style that they like, just because it's what they're comfortable with, it's really, it's not good. You know, Jesus blasted tradition. In Matthew 23, verse 4, he talked about the Pharisees and how they tie up heavy, burdensome loads and lay them on people's shoulders. He's talking about the traditions that they had, the traditions that just weighed people down. And think back to the start of the Stone Campbell movement, you know, back when you were young, when you were a kid. Um, the Churches of Christ were non-denominational and anti-traditional. They felt that church tradition was divisive and was dangerous and was holding us back. And honestly, I don't blame them. Okay, I get it. Sometimes new things are better. Sometimes traditions can be a problem. Um, when I was preaching full-time at one congregation, there was a little old lady who would verbally pummel me anytime I delivered a sermon and didn't wrap up that sermon with an all-in, come-to-Jesus altar call whether it fit the conclusion of the sermon or not. And that was because that was her tradition. That's what she was used to. And you should have heard the fuss we had when we moved to hymnals that did not have shape notes. What are shape notes? Shape notes. <laughs> These are like notations where each note has a different, different shape. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, we don't have time for all that. Uh, good morning, everybody. I'm Joel Childers. This is my dad, Jeff. Um, you've been listening in on our little conversation here. Uh, this is basically what every dinner table experience was like growing up, so you're <laughs> welcome uh, for getting to be a part of it. We're in a series on tall tales. These are stories that are partly true, like new is better, but they're not completely true, and they're often not as true as we like to believe that they are. Uh, we have these assumptions and deep beliefs that get deep inside us, and they shape us and influence our values and our priorities. They influence what we do, what we say, how we think. And often these things are operating sort of under the surface. They're like our basic instincts. We don't even know that we've bought into these tall tales, but they're influencing the way we live and how we view the world. Um, and some of these things are so powerful that they can be really damaging as far as a life of faith and Christian community goes. And so this week we're talking about uh, three tall tales. Yesterday we talked about the tale, I need to keep my options open. How our culture's fear of commitment can undermine Christian community. Sometimes people don't want to commit because they think something better might come along later or the thing that they've committed to might not pan out. And the truth is you really can't get what you need and what you want out of church if you aren't willing to commit. Yeah, and today we're talking about the tall tale, you need 
an upgrade. And if you were here yesterday, you know, we talked about commitment. If you were here yesterday, thanks for following through on that commitment thing we were talking about, yeah. right? And, right? And showing up. And if you're here today just to kind of get a good seat for Scott McKnight, <laughs> uh, we'll take it. Yeah. We're, we're glad you're here. But the, the, the topic today relates to the one yesterday because that makes us sort of susceptible to the lie that our lives would be better if uh, we could change things and if we could have new things, if I could have new toys, if I could have new friends, if I could have a new job, a new place to live, if I could have a new church, maybe a new spouse, uh, just all sorts of things that we think would improve our lives if we could just have new things. And people who are always looking for an upgrade have a hard time making commitments and following through on those commitments. But, so that's one aspect. But this tall tale that new things are better and that we need an upgrade also makes us allergic to one of the most important and life-giving aspects of faith and Christian community, tradition. Yeah, and that's what we're really going to focus on today is how this tall tale you need an upgrade impacts our view of tradition. There are some pretty good reasons to be suspicious of tradition uh, because it can cause problems, and a lot of us have seen that in our lives and in our churches, but that's really not the whole truth about it because traditions can also nurture life, and they can also celebrate life. I mean, think about birthdays. Why do we still celebrate birthdays? Those are just traditions, but they're traditions that people think are really important. Some people, like my dad, have been celebrating that tradition for longer than you can possibly imagine. Um, <laughs> birthdays are important to us. We think that it's meaningful to celebrate life through that tradition. It, anniversaries, too, is a good example. You know, my first anniversary comes up in August, and I, I'm guessing that if I were to say to my wife, you know, I told you I loved you back in 2017, Saying it again, it's just this tradition. Celebrating an anniversary, it's just an old tradition. We don't need it. We'll just move on and do new things. I'm guessing if I were to say that to her, uh, that wouldn't go over very well because there's something about us that kind of digs traditions. We like traditions. If you've ever been to uh, a sporting event or a football game at a big university, you know that there's a lot of traditions that go into that, that kind of event. I'm a big... Texas Tech football fan, and if you go to a Texas Tech game, before the game at kickoff and really throughout the game, students are going to be throwing Frisbee tortillas around. They've got tortillas, and they're going to be throwing them around like Frisbees all over the stadium, and there's really no reason for that. It's just a tradition, and there's a million stories about how that tradition started, and probably none of those stories is actually true, and there's not really a good reason to throw tortilla Frisbees except for it's a tradition, um, and it's meaningful to people. But, but it actually does do something for us. It's not just an empty tradition. What do tortilla frisbees do for the Texas Tech students? Well, it makes the games more memorable. Uh, it, it gives the students an identity, and it pulls them together as a community. It distracts them from another Texas Tech longstanding tradition, losing. <laughs> yeah, that, that's... <laughs> <laughs> that is true, yeah. Um, and, and it teaches about their core values, uh, which they're not necessarily deep core values, but there's values there <laughs> with, with those tortilla frisbees. Because the fact is, traditions and traditional rituals and practices have always been a part of what it means to be human. 
They're part of all of our lives. They've been a huge part of my life. And I'm very grateful for many of the traditions that I was raised with that have shaped who I am. Uh, I think first about the simple tradition of family meals together. When I was growing up, we typically had breakfast and dinner together every day. And now that I'm older, I realize how difficult that was for my parents to pull off. You know, they had to get us out of bed in the morning. My mom put a ton of work into the meals, getting things ready, getting us all gathered together back in the evenings. Um, and there were certainly times when I resented or was frustrated about having to do that. I didn't love the fact that family meals weren't really negotiable. We were going to be there. But looking back, those times were awesome, just sitting down together and sharing a meal, and passing food around the table and talking about our days, praying together, sometimes reading uh, scripture or devotionals together. I wouldn't trade those times for anything. And another tradition that, that we had was what we called nesting night. It was every Friday night for years when I was growing up was basically just a family night. And we would uh, all put aside whatever we had been working on uh, that week and just gather together and have fun together and enjoy family life together. And yes, there are particular specific instances that stand out, but mostly what was valuable about those times was just the fact that we did them. Every day, every week, year in, year out, we kept doing them. And that created space for family life to happen. And it gave us sort of an identity as a family together. Yeah, I think so too. Um, there's a historian of Christian doctrine, Yaroslav Pelikan, who distinguished between traditionalism and tradition. And he said that uh, traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. But tradition is the living faith of the dead. And those are two very different things. And we, we've got sort of, uh, you know, it's traditionalism that leaves a bad taste in our mouths. But tradition itself is a little different. And it's not helpful to sort of lump these things together, tradition and traditionalism, as if they really are the same thing. You are going to have traditions. There is no doubt. You're going to have rituals. There is no doubt. The question is, what are those traditions going to be? And what rituals are you going to have? What story is it that those things tell? What story do they involve us in? What values are those traditions and rituals imparting to us? How are those things shaping my heart? How are they shaping my life, my life with my family, my life with my church? This is why in the Bible, traditions and festivals are kind of a big deal for the people of God. They were important. They were important for the people uh, so that they could keep their corporate memory alive as a people. It helped the people of God understand who they were and where they came from and where they were headed. Uh, it helped them understand a little better what story, as a people, they were meant to be living out. And they shared that in their traditions. Now, Jesus was critical when people would misuse tradition. When he says the Sabbath was made for people and not people for the Sabbath in Mark 2, he's not saying the Sabbath was bad. He's um, saying that using the Sabbath tradition to keep someone from healing a man with a healing a, a man with a shriveled hand, for example, in the next chapter in Mark 3, that that's bad. 
that's what he's criticizing. Jesus is not anti-tradition, and we can't really characterize Jesus as somebody who is against tradition per se. He was bothered by the way some people were letting their traditions become idols that they worshipped more than God, and he was certainly bothered when they let their traditions block out weightier matters of the law, as he called it in Matthew 23, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. But even those things, justice and mercy and faithfulness as core values for the people, were a part of the tradition. And they learned it because of the tradition. These things were, those weren't new ideas that Jesus was talking about. He was referring back to core values that were embedded in the story of the people and their understanding of God's nature. And when they gathered every week in the synagogue and sang the Psalms or when they read scripture, when people spoke about those things and they rehearsed the tradition, rehearsed their story, they were learning the heart of God. Jesus was referring to good tradition, to correct bad tradition, and make it good again. The same thing was happening in the early church. Um, In the early church, passing on the tradition was an important Christian practice. They had this tradition of meeting together constantly, according to the early chapters of the book of Acts. And one of the things they did when they practiced the tradition of meeting together constantly was to study the tradition that the apostles had given them so they could understand better what the Lord wanted from them. This was what the apostles had handed on to them. And pretty soon, this developed into a tradition of meeting every Sunday. And you could count on people in churches all over the world, wherever they were planted, gathering on a Sunday in order to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, to connect with the story of salvation so that people would remember that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is what they were about And this was being conveyed and carried and kind of normed and moved forward because of the tradition of gathering on a Sunday. Uh, We could talk about it in lots of different ways, but there are some key traditions that Jesus handed on that well represent this, like the tradition of baptism. Early Christians practiced baptism because Jesus commanded it. Jesus himself was baptized. This was a way of Inviting people into the life of God, the Father and Son and Spirit. It was a way of imitating Jesus. And it was a way of entering into the rhythms of death and burial and resurrection so that they could learn the rhythms of death to life, death to life, death to life, which were how Jesus lived and what Jesus had called his disciples to, this traditional practice that was so pivotal for early Christians was a way of, of learning through traditional means and through ritual what their identity was meant to be. It was a way of picking up the moves that they were meant to uh, apply every day as they put their neighbors first, as they put God ahead of their own interests. The same is true with the tradition of the Lord's Supper. This was a practice that Jesus expected his followers to repeat over and over and over again until he returned. And in so doing, that as they gathered around the table, they would remember the story of Jesus on the cross. They would come to the cross. They would, uh, in this traditional practice, this ritual, be given an opportunity to gather together and to taste what it meant to be a part of the body of Christ. The tradition, the word tradition just means something that's handed on. The handing on of this practice and the continued traditioning of it the ongoing handing on of it 
was a way of keeping people rooted in their story and giving them their identity. Yeah, you talking about the Lord's Supper makes me think of another one of my favorite traditions, Passover. Uh, we, we celebrated a Passover meal often when I was growing up. We celebrated one just a few weeks ago with friends from church and family. Uh, and the Passover, celebrating a Passover meal is a great way of practicing a tradition that sort of immerses you in a story because you read the story of God's people, you taste the story, the good parts and the bad parts, you sing the story, sometimes you dance the story a little bit, um, and that's what the Passover does for you. And a couple weeks ago, when we met for that meal, we talked about how in the Bible, often the Passover comes up when the people of God need to be remember, need to remember uh, who they are. When God's trying to remind them who they are, uh, he, he brings up the Passover. Like in Joshua 5, when the Israelites are about to go into the promised land. Or in 2 Kings 23, when the people had stopped doing the Passover and the King Josiah wanted them to renew their covenant with God. Or in Ezra 6, when the exiles are coming back into the land. Passover came back up as an important practice in these times because there's something about tradition that helps us remember who we are and what our purpose is. When the people of God lose their way, often God's answer is not some new idea or innovation. Often God's answer is tradition. Yeah, that's how it is through the history of the church too. I'm a church historian and uh, it has often been remarked that in periods of great reform or renewal in the history of Christianity, one of the things that goes along with that is this looking back looking back to the first century and looking back to the tradition, trying to get reoriented again on the identity and then where things have come since then. That's sort of part and parcel of what it means to be a church that's moving forward, a church that's moving forward into the future, healthily, is always kind of looking back into the tradition as well. So if the Sabbath really was created for us, then what are some things tradition does for us? Well, for one, traditions give us our identity. In my youth group growing up, we had a great tradition uh, on mission trips. And every week that we went on a mission trip, no matter what we were doing, after a week full of work and sweat, whether we were roofing a house or mowing lawns or playing with kids at a VBS, we always ended the trip, the last night of the week, the same way. We would wash each other's feet. You know, we would gather and have a quiet time of worship and dim the lights, and we'd all sit around in a circle, and as the evening went on, we would get up and go over to someone else, get down on our knees, and wash their feet, and speak a word of blessing over them. And someone would come and wash my feet and do the same for me. It was this tradition we had, but it was more than that, because it told us who we were, or maybe more importantly, it told us who it was that we wanted to be, who we were trying to become, people who washed each other's feet. The traditions, they, they train our hearts and they shape our identity. And yes, that can go bad, but it can also go very, very good as well. The traditions, they become like these good habits that we have and they make it easier for us to know who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it. Yeah, I think that's actually good. That's really good. 
not only for us, but it's also good for um, even new people and even outsiders to notice the value of this as an identity-forming thing. Now, I know that sometimes the distinctive traditions that we have can be unfamiliar or confusing to people. Like when we were living in England, it, it took us a while to realize that at the end of the service, we were standing up for the last verse of the last song, everybody sits down, seemingly spontaneously, uh, for a couple of minutes, quietly, until we then get up at the end of the service and start visiting together. It took a couple of services for us to realize that we were the only ones still standing up, you know, <laughs> after the song. Uh, sometimes distinctive traditions can be a little disorienting and confusing, but what are the options? Are, 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 to say, look, we're only going to do the things that you're already comfortable and familiar with. That's a little ridiculous, especially if we imagine that what we would like to do is to invite people into a distinctive way of life that at its heart is going to have some pretty uncomfortable and different sorts of moves to it. So then that sets us up for sort of bait and switch, uh, which is another bad approach to it, I think. And that is, uh, well, we'll do only what's comfortable and familiar to people who don't get all of our traditions until they come in and become part of us and then say, actually, we were just kidding. We want you to live this way instead. Um, that doesn't seem good, too. Now, I know distinctive traditions can be disorienting to outsiders. That's an easy thing to say with a kind of mission-minded uh, uh, mentality, and it's true. But let's be honest as well, because it's not a one-sided thing. Sometimes doing the same things the same way actually make it easier for people to figure out earlier what's expected of them and what this group is about and what it is that they're going to be doing. Sometimes our distinctive ways of practice become really great entry points for people who are trying to figure out our distinctive way of life. Yeah, exactly. Thinking back again to my youth group, uh, anytime somebody was experiencing something really tough in their life or anytime somebody was moving away, we would all as a youth group just get up seemingly spontaneously and go lay our hands on them, get really close, no personal space, and pray over them. Um, it was just this habit we did. It was something that seemed to be spontaneous, but we didn't have to think about it every time. We didn't have to come up with something new every time. And sure, when new people came in, the first time they experienced that, they were like, what's going on? Why is everybody getting up? What are we doing? But pretty quickly, they caught on, and they became a part of that. It was just a habit, but it was actually a really great habit that we had. Yeah, and as automatic, spontaneous habits go, I think that's a, that's a really good one. A lot of times with our traditions, we're not just learning when to stand up and when to sit down, but we're also uh, learning deeper things, too. We're learning habits of care, like that one. Uh, and we're learning practices and rituals of self-discipline, which is actually a pretty important capacity in the Christian life. Yeah, um, and another thing I've learned about what traditions can do for us is that traditions connect us to a story that's bigger than ourselves. I spent a semester studying abroad, and I was in Rome on Easter weekend, and we went to a Saturday evening mass, and pretty much the whole service was in Latin. And so me and my friends, were, we were just trying to keep up. Like, when do we stand? When do we sit? We didn't know what was going on. But one of the girls that we were traveling with had grown up Catholic, and her experience was pretty different because she knew those traditions, and she had heard that liturgy before. And I, I didn't know what was going on, 
but she was able to follow the service and connect with that time of worship in a meaningful way because she had a common tradition. Even though it was a service in a different language, in a different country, she connected with it because of shared traditions. And it made me think about how my church has traditions too, things that connect me with my church family, things that connect me with my heritage as a whole. And we all have traditions that connect us to the bigger story of God's people, things like you talked about, like baptism and the Lord's Supper, things that Christians share together and, and make remind us that this walk of faith is about more than just my little church and my little town and my little country. It's a lot bigger than that. That's what traditions do. I think that's important. I think people want that. I think people need that. They want to connect to something bigger than themselves. Maybe it's because we're all created in the image of God and we have this God-shaped hole in our hearts and we know there's something bigger than ourselves out there that we want to connect to. Uh, It's remarkable in recent years how that in North America, some of the most traditional Christian groups are getting a lot of attention these days and people are interested in them and some of them are growing. I'm thinking about churches like the Orthodox churches, Eastern Orthodox and Greek Orthodox. These people couldn't care less what you want. You know, they're going to do the thing that fits the tradition that they've had for so long. And it's surprising how many people find that refreshing. And those groups are actually growing a little bit more than they were in recent decades. I think it's maybe because people want to connect with something that's bigger than themselves. They want to connect with something that's not going to change with every whim and trend of the latest move of a style or ethical fashion, uh, something that is reliable and historic, uh, with, uh, that's not up for grabs you know, all the time. It's not all about me. Well, I want to be in a place that gives me what I want. I think some people find that not so helpful. Okay, so we've got these things about tradition that we think are really helpful. and We're trying to get us to think about it a little bit and, 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 and rehabilitate the idea of tradition as a good thing because tradition can give us an identity. Tradition can help us to learn redemptive habits. Tradition uh, connects us to something that's bigger than ourselves which then becomes a pathway to God and also a pathway to uh, a a larger sense of my life's purpose. You know, these are three great things about tradition. But if it is so great, if tradition is not really a four-letter word, get it in the the old letters. Six or seven, yeah. Yeah, yeah, six or seven, I don't know. Depends on how you spell it, I guess, (laughs) the right way. Why are we so allergic to it? Well, there are different reasons for that. I think, you know, especially for Protestants, the Protestant Reformation began as a reaction to some traditions that many church leaders found really unhelpful and maybe even abusive. Not maybe, they were abusive. And they were pushing back against that. And a lot of movement started during the Protestant Reformation as a way of leaving behind the past and starting something new that would be better. So this is kind of baked into the DNA. That's a mixed metaphor, isn't it? But it baked into the DNA of a lot of, uh, lot of churches. And then you talked about uh, the Stone Campbell movement, which began way before me. <laughs> uh, but it was an American reform movement where a lot of the leaders in it believed that 
many traditions had gone wrong, and especially the traditions of denominations that kept them divided from each other, and for the sake of church unity, they felt like they needed to get rid of tradition. Not, not just a particular tradition, but almost the whole notion of tradition, and that there would be tradition. So you ended up with this interesting thing in, in Churches of Christ, for example, where it is a tradition that sort of believes itself to be traditionless. So you're part of a traditionless tradition, yeah. which makes it sometimes difficult to talk about tradition. I think these are some reasons. But don't underestimate the powerful consumer forces of our culture, too. This tall tale thing that we were talking about early on. These forces that are always trying to make us feel dissatisfied with what we have, to unsettle us, to make us believe there's maybe something better out there. So in this culture, we get conditioned to that instinct that uh, old things are, are, are not as good, new things are going to be better. And of course, there are positive reasons, as you said, to be suspicious of tradition, uh, even good traditions sometimes, because things change and the church faces new challenges. Sometimes the church learns things in its new context that it needs to take on board, and that means revising traditions and thinking about them a little differently. But these are all reasons, I think, why we have this sort of allergy to tradition. Yeah, that's true. There are some good reasons to be suspicious of tradition. But remember when you and I were trying to come up with a list of our bad traditions? It was really hard to come up with a very long list of definitive examples because of the way tradition works. It's often not the tradition itself that's bad. It's often how we talk about it or how we think about it or how we make sense of it or don't make sense of it. And I might say that some of our traditions are bad because we're just doing things over and over again, sort of out of habit. We're doing them kind of by rote. Things like reciting the same prayer over and over again. Things like sticking to the same worship order every week. But often when you look a little bit closer, even traditions like that can have really deep and redemptive meanings. Uh, I preached at a church earlier this year that clung very tightly to a specific worship order and set prayers at communion and at closing. And I know some churches do the same thing every week, pretty much. But I mean, they had a really tight script. There was no budging. They were going to do the exact same thing every time, week after week. And come to find out, they had several severely handicapped young adults who would help them lead their service. And if you had to change things up every week and do something new, you would lose them. They wouldn't be able to participate in that way. And so that might have seemed like a stale tradition with no purpose, but it, when you looked a little bit closer and when they explained the meaning to me, a newcomer, I saw that it was a tradition that was full of life and full of love. Um, but our traditions don't always have such an obvious, immediate, practical use like that. But even then, they can still be meaningful and uh, helpful. Uh, the thing about traditions is they shape us when we do them, even if we aren't thinking about the way that they're shaping us. Sometimes we'll say things like, well, there's no point in doing it unless I really understand it or unless I really mean it deep down. But we don't really believe that. And does that mean that it's not worth it to brush my teeth if my heart isn't in it. <laughs> or that, you know, I shouldn't be kind to my wife today if I'm just not feeling it. 
You know, we don't believe that you only have to do things if you really mean them. We think they're meaningful outside of that. You know, simply reciting the same prayer over and over again may not be exciting, and it may not always have an obvious practical use, but you know, when you're sitting in church next to a four-year-old who can't read or write yet, doesn't understand most of what's going on, but she can recite the Lord's Prayer because she's done it over and over, is that really such a bad thing, or is there something meaningful happening there? Yeah, I think sometimes we forget what Christianity was first considered, how it was, er, how it was characterized early on. Christianity, the first name for it was the way. Christianity is a way, and there, there are several ways that Christianity is a way, but I want to hone in on this thing that we're talking about. Christianity was a way of life. It's discipleship. We tend to treat it sometimes, after all of these centuries, as though it's a religion, which is a little different. Or maybe we think of Christianity as a philosophy, kind of a worldview. Or maybe it's an ethic. It's a set of moral principles. Honestly, a lot of times, we imagine, I think deep down, that Christianity is a product. It's a product that we're going to consume. Uh, maybe uh, it's my ticket to eternal salvation that Jesus bought for me and he's holding it for me and giving it to me. That's a product. I've commodified Christianity. Or, um, or it's an experience that I'm going to consume. Cool worship experiences or being with people who are my friends that I enjoy, which these are all wonderful things actually but that that's essentially what it is. And so Christianity then is a consumer thing that I'm consuming. But what Jesus actually called people to was a way of life and to discipleship. And that's what we've actually signed up for if we're Christians. It's like a set of practices. It's more like a skill set in a lot of ways than it is like a commodity or an affiliation uh, per se. It's a way of being in the world, a way of being in the world that follows Jesus. Now, when you think of Christianity that way, that puts habits and disciplines and practices and traditions in a pretty different light. These are the things that can help you grow. These are the things that can grant you new skills. These are the things that help you develop capacities, that help you see the world in a different way and develop the capacities as a church perhaps, to respond to new challenges in ways that are faithful to what we've received. A lot of things we could talk about, but let's just take one of the most commonly traditioned Christian practices since the beginning of Christianity. That is just gathering together as a community of believers for worship. Now, if Christianity is supposed to be a spiritual experience that I consume, then I'm going to care a lot about whether Sunday worship is uh, fresh, is innovative, is keeping me engaged, maybe even entertaining me, whether the people there are the people that I like and enjoy and are fun and pleasant, and whether I feel like it on that day really matters, you know. But if Christianity is a way, then just the mere fact that your family gets up early on a Sunday morning to gather with other Christians to worship to ritually embody the commitment to honor God by laying aside a bunch of other things that are clamoring for your attention and your investment, 
The mere fact that you're doing that is spiritually transformative all in itself. Just the habit itself inscribes you with certain values. Just the habit itself can support certain views of the world and what your life is pointed towards. Just the habit itself rehearses a kind of commitment to a particular group of people. Now, whether you end up liking the sermon or it was meaningful or whether you really felt the music that day is kind of secondary to, to the rest of that. That's not really relevant to that part of it. And then when you show up and you look to your right, you look to your right, <laughs> sorry, this way, look to your right, you look to your left, and there are other people who've shown up there too, whether it's in a living room or a storefront or a chapel like this or whatever it is, you are practicing a certain view of the world. And to see them doing it as well, you receive them in love, and they receive you in love week after week. You're actually building a different version of the world at that point, a different version than the news shows us, a different version than you can find on um, social media. Now, I know, okay, can, so can church attendance, you better be there, can that be turned into an idol that we worship? Absolutely. And being the enlightened person who knows that church attendance is not everything can be an idol as well. There really actually aren't any safe zones here. All things can be turned into idols. So every time I go, yeah, but let's be careful of X, you just got to flip it around and realize that whatever you're protecting by saying that, by offering that caveat, is potentially that now we're on to what your idol is, you know, or where the idolatrous danger is anyway. So, yeah, of course, traditions can be idolized. And so can the tradition of being traditionless be idolized as well. The thing is, you're going to have traditions, you're going to have rituals, and they will shape our hearts, they will shape our values, they will shape the hearts of our children and the hearts and values of our grandchildren. They'll determine the habits of our souls and the habits of our lives in a lot of ways. And they'll also be some of the first things by which people from the outside get a glimpse of what the distinctive life we have together and share really is all about. Now, I'm not saying that content doesn't matter, you know, uh, or that style doesn't matter. I'm not saying things never need to change. I'm not saying that there aren't times for innovation or that innovation is necessarily bad. But because of our history and because of the myths of our culture, this tall tale that we probably need an upgrade, one thing we don't always appreciate is the spiritually formative power of tradition in our lives, in our families, in our churches. Yeah, I, I really like everything you've been saying. That, but let's, we're done. <laughs> yeah. Um, this does, though, bring up a little bit of a touchy subject because one of the things that I think would be helpful as we try to lean into the positive aspects of tradition is for you to be a little bit less neurotic about your traditions. What are you talking about? When you say you, you mean, do you mean them? Well, you, but also a collective you, I guess, a little bit. You and people okay. your age seem uh, really embarrassed about your traditions. Hmm. 
you mock them. You make fun of them. You make jokes like, well, aren't you glad we don't think the same old way we used to think? Aren't you glad that we don't do things the same old way that we always used to do them or that we've outgrown this or that we've outgrown that? And then you warn us as young people about all the dangers of your heritage. Uh, Do you really think that being uber-traditional is going to be a huge problem for millennials or for Generation Z? I don't think that it is. Do you really think that if all we ever see is you being dismissive of your parents in the faith, you mocking the people who handed the tradition down to you, do you think that that is going to be helpful for us? It, It seems like the low-hanging fruit of church humor is jokes about tradition. You know, if you want to make a joke that everybody's going to laugh at, everybody in the room, it's going to be a joke about the traditions, the way we used to do things. I'm glad we're not going to do that anymore. (laughs) Um, And the thing is, everybody in the room is going to laugh at that, but only about half the people in the room actually get that. Because to people my age and younger than me and to new Christians and seekers, people new to the faith, That's just this inside joke that they don't really get because we don't have all the baggage about our traditions that that you do. But we feel like we do because we've sort of been indoctrinated into that. You're welcome. (laughs) Um, And I get it that some of your traditions have been damaging and they're are parts of your heritage that you feel like have caused pain for for you or for people you love. I get that. I'm not trying to be insensitive to it. But how does you, you know, working out all of your hang-ups with your own heritage and bad-mouthing it, how does that help us find our place in the story or or figure out who it is that we're supposed to be? Like I mentioned yesterday, if you were here, Studies show us that one of the most effective parts of good youth ministry is the committed, long-term presence of adults in a young person's life. Young people want to be with you. They want to learn from you and, and to know what you think. And if the only thing that you ever think is that your traditions are garbage, then that's exactly what they're going to think, too. And if what you said is true and we're all going to have traditions no matter what, then a lot of us are just going to go somewhere else to find our traditions instead of receiving the ones that you passed down to us. Okay. Uh, Ouch, maybe. Uh, That makes sense, listening to that. Um, Sometimes I think we get frustrated with uh, questionable parts of our tradition, like you said, things that have, that have hurt, maybe things need to be changed, or, or how those things have been used. And what you're talking about is one of the ways that we have of sort of processing that. And you're probably right. We, we probably haven't always been as mature in how we do that as, um, as we could be. And I really think we haven't thought through uh, how um, that doesn't, help you um, who don't have that baggage, you know, how it's really affecting people who don't have the same baggage. Honestly, I think a lot of us do take for granted many of the real treasures of our heritage. Um, We struggle to be grateful for what we've received. 
and that makes this a spiritual problem. I think about uh, the difference between people who are happy and people who are not happy, and it turns out that a lot of times the difference between those people are not really their circumstances so much, but it's more um, how I see things, and how I see things has a lot to do with what I'm practicing. So they did studies a few years back at uh, UC Davis and the University of Miami involving three groups of students, and uh, they had the students write daily diaries. And one of the, they had, but they had different prompts. So one of the groups was prompted this way. I want you to reflect on the day and comment on all the things that went wrong, your hassles, the problems, the things that concerned you. And another group was given the prompt, we just want you to kind of reflect on the day. Just tell us what happened today. And, but another group was given the prompt, we'd like you to reflect on your blessings. Reflect on the good things, the good aspects of what happened to you today. Guess which group ended up being happier? The group that practiced gratitude. Feeling grateful came as the result of a practice, not the other way around. Uh, they ended up being more optimistic. They ended up feeling like they were more on top of things in their lives. They even felt a little more generous with their time in their lives. They were doing things more to serve. You could quantify that they were making more space to serve other people. Now, they did the same study uh, with some people that had uh, older people that had neuromuscular diseases, and it, it, the results were the same. The, the grateful people even slept better than the other people, and their partners were happier with them too. It turns out people who are more satisfied are more enjoyable to hang around. Um, we're all pretty good at spotting problems. We're all pretty good about complaining about things we don't like. Too often we practice being unhappy with the way things are, with what's missing or what's gone wrong in my life or in my church or in my family. This is something that spiritual masters have known about for a long time, and you can find it in lots of different texts. But like the classic text of the great spiritual master, the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Or how he says in Philippians 4 that he's learned to be content, whatever the situation. And what's that old song? Count your blessings, right? Name them one by one. My, uh, my wife and her friend were talking, and they decided... They weren't as grateful for things as they wanted to be, and so they made a little covenant together. Every day, we're going to text each other a thing that we're grateful for, and they've been practicing that now for a while. That's not a bad, thinking about practical steps. You know, this isn't a series on uh, a lot of how-to steps. It's mostly about attitudes and deep assumptions, but this is a practical step, a way of battling dissatisfaction in our lives and also pushing back a little bit against the lie that we always need an upgrade, that is to practice gratitude. And I wonder what it would look like in our churches if we instituted that as a practice with respect to our heritage, with respect to our tradition. If there were times in our Bible classes and in our small groups and in our youth ministries when we as leaders had as an agenda item rehearsing some of the really positive aspects of, um, of tradition. Um, that's a great uh, practical, realistic step that we can take to work on doing 
tradition better. Well, I think it's a way of sowing to the Spirit yeah. and can bring transformation. Absolutely. Um, another thing that we can do is just work on deepening the meaning of our traditions. And there's a lot we could talk about there, and we don't have time to get into all of it today. But it starts with simply identifying your traditions and then unpacking them through your conversations and through your teaching. You ask questions like, what traditions do I have? Or what traditions do we have? Where did they come from? What does the Bible say about them? What do they mean? What do they mean to us? What do they mean to other people? What are the symbols in our traditions about? Symbols like water, symbols like bread, symbols like touch and, and people's feet. What, what do those symbols mean? What do they tell us about ourselves? How do they tell us the story of our identity? How do they give us our purpose? How do they tell us what we're supposed to do or who we're supposed to be? What values are traditions trying to give us? How can we talk about these things in ways that put them in their best light? And obviously, that's a bunch of questions. It's going to take some time and effort to unpack a lot of our traditions. It's going to take a lot of conversation, a lot of study, a lot of prayer, a lot of teaching, a lot of preaching. But these are good practices to have together as a church, identifying our traditions and then unpacking them. And another thing is simply to build some traditions. You know, we can create new ones or maybe revive some old ones. And that's probably where all of us have a lot of wisdom because we all have different experiences with different traditions. You know, I have a lot of traditions that I've mentioned from my family and my life that have been meaningful and have shaped me in meaningful ways. And I'm sure a lot of people uh, in this room do as well. Yeah, I'm sure that's true, and yeah. this is one of the things that we're wanting to do is to get us to think about these things, get us to talk about these things, so we're going to give you some homework. Even if you've joined our class just to get a spot for Scott McKnight, this homework's on you as well. <laughs> um, to, to, to think about powerful traditions in your own experience. What are some things at home or, or in your church that were traditional that, you know, you, many of the things that you've talked about, Joel, kind of stimulate thought about meaningful traditions um, and uh, think about that, and maybe talk with someone, someone who's come with you uh, uh, here to the lectures. Talk, just share about a powerful tradition that you've had. Say these children's clowns, they gave us this homework assignment <laughs> to come up with a powerful, important tradition in my life, and I would like to tell you, you know. But uh, that's, a kind of that's the kind of practice that we're talking about, yeah. uh, rehearsing these sorts of things. And all of this reminds me that as human beings, we are meaning makers. It's a big part of who we are. I think it's because we're, we're built in the image of God. We're meaning makers. Squirrels do not do this. Trees do not do this. They do not sit back and ask the big why questions, right? But we do. And so to do what you're saying, to identify some of our traditions and then sort of unpack them, is to ask the why question. And I hope what we've, uh, what we've shown is that you haven't actually plumbed the answer to the why question if all you can come up with is, well, we started this back at such and such time and it's just the kind of the way we've always done it. Um, yeah. Or, well, it served this practical need and so that's what it is and let's be done with it. Because if it were that simple, then you wouldn't have people who push back against suggested changes in tradition. Uh, a lot of these people are not just obstructionists. They're not, actually, right? I mean, most of the time, they're nice people that seem like they're serving God and they want to please the Lord. And yet, 
They react in this instinctive way against a, tra a change in tradition. Well, that's because of these instincts that we're talking about deep down. You actually are tinkering with identity. You actually are tinkering with the baggage, you know, that is often un un unidentified and, and not always claimed on the surface of things. So sometimes we have to do like the apostles have done as well, like the apostles did with baptism. They just didn't say, well, Jesus did this or he commanded it, so that was the end of it. You look at the New Testament, and they spend a lot of time exploring and discovering the meaning of the baptism practice. They use imagination to connect it to a wide range of things. And I think this is part of what we're talking about, too, asking these questions. Where did this come from? Why do we do this? But also, what can this mean? What can this do for us? What are, what are the beauties that are inherent here? What, are, what is the value and power? of this thing. So, I mean, we don't know exactly what traditions you might have in your context uh, and uh, what kinds of things might need to change or not. What we want to do is to expose the lie that tradition is bad just because it's tradition. And what we're hoping, we've begun to get you to think about at least, is that there are good reasons for appreciating the life-giving, identity-imparting, grounding power and force of tradition. And that maybe can make us a little more patient with people who are frustrated or scared when we talk about changing tradition, and maybe give us listening ears so we can hear what the deep-down instincts are, because yeah, sometimes something's just wrong and it needs to change. Sometimes it's just outdated and it needs to change. But sometimes when we change it, we lose track of something that was important and we don't even know that's what we're doing and maybe we need to find ways to honor that and compensate for it. What we need is to appreciate that habits are not necessarily ruts and traditions are not necessarily straitjackets. And since whatever you know, new practice I run off to is going to include the thing that will most determine the quality of that, namely me, or as a group, you, us, as a church, I need to spend a little more energy learning to appreciate where I am, how I got here, and develop the ability to receive the positive aspects of my tradition well, and commit myself, like Joel was saying, to uh, building good, positive traditions in my family, and uh, in my church. So tell us about tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow we're going to be talking about the tall tale, the main thing is. How often we tend to focus so much on one main thing that uh, we lose sight of other equally important things. And that can lead us to not uh, fix things that need to be fixed, but it can also lead us to mistreat other people because we're viewing everybody else through the lens of our main thing that we hold so importantly. So uh, thank you for being here, and uh, we hope that you'll join us tomorrow. If you're here yesterday, here today, continue that tradition. Come back tomorrow. Um, we'd love to see you. Blessings on the rest of your day. Yeah. Thank you.